0: Thank <sharp inhale> you. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creasman. And I'm Ira Creasman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII. When last we left our heroes, they were not really escaping the Gold Saucer Gulag so much as being let free by the king capitalist of this very strange enterprise. And they've been given a buggy as one does uh, in order to continue their journey and travel south away from this incredibly bizarre uh, but thoroughly entertaining episode at the Gold Saucer.
1: Right. He pardons us by note and then gives us sort of the game directions, right? Like this is the just so the player knows what to do next. Uh, yeah, Sep- I heard Sephiroth was headed toward Gongaga south of the river. So, you know, being heroes. In an RPG, we head toward Gangaga, south of the river.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of those uh, plot things from the old video games that gets smoothed out in uh, more recent times, where <laughs> the, the characters do a lot less of, hey, press triangle to run. You know?
1: So we get to the area where Gangaga is, and on the world map it's pretty obvious that there's this little town and also uh, a maker reactor that's been ruined. So you, you go into the area, uh, and the first thing that happens, actually, is you run into the Turks. Uh, Reno and Rude are chatting, and you just sort of listen in for a minute. Uh, Rude admits that he's got a big crush on Tifa. And then Elena admits that she's got a crush on Sang, but Sang has a crush on that ancient, presuming uh, presumably referring to Aerith. Yeah. So we get this weird little like love quadrangle thing going on with, with the
0: Turks. Yeah. This is one of the scenes that sort of starts to turn your opinion on the Turks, and I don't know how Final Fantasy VII pulls off this trick of ultimately making us feel sympathetic. I don't know if sympathetic is the right word. Um, You almost feel, if not by the end of the game, certainly by, sorry folks, it's all canon, the end of Advent Children, that... You kind of like the Turks. You're you're kind of with them. And, and I even feel like in some ways by the end of this game, and let's remember, these are people responsible for kidnapping. And they're the people who pulled the trigger on dropping the plate and killing right. millions yeah. of people. But uh, this is one way that they really start to be humanized, which is an interesting trick to pull off for people who are literally wearing uniform. Right. They're all look exactly the same, except for their face and hair. That's the only way we Uh can separate the Turks. And now by their personalities. And them standing around and talking about who they're crushing on, like a bunch of high schoolers, is kind of just the most adorable and endearing thing that you could do for, so far, these people who've been largely antagonistic and scary cool, but, you know, they're Root's got a crush on Tifa. How bad can he
1: be? It I mean it is it is really cute and it is really humanizing, but it's also yeah, like, like you got to kind of be careful about making sympathetic the people who carry out kidnap, torture and murder. Sure. Yeah. Like like they are real people too and we do need to recognize that and, and be aware of it, but also Like, if if the story wants to make us sympathetic toward them, then maybe it would be a good idea if, uh, say, for example, in a remake, they gave us some hint that maybe they weren't totally on board uh, with dropping the plate,
0: right? And, And that's why I think the remake was so good in that way, because it knows we're going to like Reno in some way. Like, he's just got into the ethos since 1997, and so to see in the remake him really struggling with that decision... Um, mm-hmm. and immediately regretting it. One of my favorite scenes in the remake. Sorry, folks. We're, we're, it's unavoidable. Spoiler, spoilers, spoilers. Yep. Um, yeah, it, is the two of them in the meeting after it's happened with Sang. A, a scene we never got in the original that does what you're talking about here. It's so we're not undercutting the seriousness of what they've done. They can't just be humanized because, oh, we like him because he's funny. Like, no, you you also have to like reno because you see that while he did go through with this thing he felt like he was ordered to do he knew it was wrong and it's sort of the start of his awakening because we can forgive people who've had a moral awakening much more than we can forgive people who've done a terrible thing but we just like their personality anyway
1: right right and i i think that's one of the reasons the uh rogue one star wars movie works so well like they're on the good guy's side, right? They're on the side of the rebellion. But at the same time, some of these guys are doing some really awful things. Yeah. And they're doing it to topple the, the emperor and fascism. But still, like, can we, can we forgive that? Can we, can we say that's okay? I'm, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a tough call to make. But I think the movie works so well because it shows what they're doing and why they're doing and how they struggle with it. And the how they struggle with it is really important. Right.
0: And there's a mirror of that on the other side in the remake that we didn't see too much of in the original where Tifa has a deep moral struggle with the violence they're causing for what they believe in. So really, really good stuff there. So uh, our heroes make their way to the
1: town of Gangaga. It's obvious as you come in uh, that the uh, exploded reactor is in the background sort of looming And the background of this town. I do wonder uh, if it's a good idea to have this little town so near an exploded reactor. Is there like, you know, is this Chernobyl like? Do we have radiation? Yeah. Or, again, referencing the remake, Mako poisoning? Yeah. I I remember Jesse's dad.
0: Uh huh. I I think this is a pretty clear uh, Chernobyl reference.
1: Whenever a JRPG has a cemetery in town, you know that is a town that is rife with trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh there's a little cemetery here. Uh, a person explains that uh, the explosion happened 3 years ago, killed a lot of people, killed this particular person's husband. In town, there is uh, a house with a uh, with an older couple in it.
0: Yeah. Um, uh I'm getting emotional already. Keep going.
1: So, uh one of the uh one of the people says, "Hey, you 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 there. You have a a glow in your eye. Are you in soldier?" Do you know anything about our son? His name is Zach. It's been 10 years since he left for the city. Oh, Cloud. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. It's been 10 years. Cloud uh, does not remember Zach, but Aerith. Aerith does, and she says says his name. She says Zach. And the parents say, Young lady, do you know him? He wrote to us six or seven years ago saying he had a girlfriend. Could that have been you? Now... I have a question real quick. Aerith is, what, 21, 22 at this point? Yeah. So six years ago would make her 15,
0: 16? Yeah.
1: Which is not... I mean, 15, 16-year-old girls have boyfriends. Zach's only a couple years older, right? So it's like having a boyfriend in high school, except you don't go to high school and he's part of this uh, corporate military. It's, it's worth remembering that these are these people going through the trauma of being in a JRPG they are quite young yeah
0: i i think it's more you know final fantasies are almost always also coming of age stories for some though. because as you said the, sure. the main characters tend to be young and, and so whether or not they hyper focus on early childhood trauma so yeah but here you know Aerith for You know, spoilers for Crisis Core and and for a little bit later on, though, that she had the first love, and that's how she describes him both in the original game and in the remake. First love of her life when she was, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 years old, like many of us experience. And they'd been writing letters, and he went off, you know, on a mission and just didn't come home one day. Right. With no explanation. Right. And um, that would affect a person. Our heroes have no answer for this older
1: couple. Aerith and Tifa both leave. Uh, Cloud's kind of confused, so he goes out to, to follow them. Uh, Cloud is not the one brooding this time. Instead, it's both Tifa and Aerith brooding separately. Uh, so he approaches Tifa, and she says, you know, that sounds a lot like you, leaving town and saying, I'm going to join Soldier. And Cloud says, well, you know, a lot of guys were like that back then, but. yeah." It's important that Tifa makes this connection, right? Yeah. And then uh, he goes and talks to Aerith. I mean, you can choose which to talk to first, and that probably matters for the the dating event that comes up. Sure. So, in talking to Aerith, she explains, as you just said, that you know she didn't know Zack was from this town, but she says, "Yeah, he was. He was my first love, uh, soldier first class, same as you." Cloud uh, says, "It's strange. There aren't many who make first class, and I've never, I've never heard of him." And yeah, that is strange, Cloud.
0: You should investigate that thought <laughs> a little bit
1: further. Aerith is pretty uh, zen about it. She's pretty in the yeah. moment. She says, uh, "You know, it's in the past. I'm I'm just worried because I heard he was missing. He he went on that mission five years ago, never came back. But he did love women. He was a real ladies' man. Probably found somebody else, and that's fine. I just I feel bad for his parents.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm cry. yeah, yeah. I mean, again." that's the internalization you have to do when the world doesn't give you closure. You have to create it for yourself. And I think it explains a lot about why Aerith is a live in the moment, live for joy. Yes. But she's not the, the puritanical symbol of all things that are good. As it's often been pointed out, she's a, a person with trauma and emotion who has made a decision to, live her life in the now and not dwell on the past or, or even fret too much about the future. And it's one of the things I love so much about her is as you put it, it's, it, it is her Zen, you know, where some people would let things like this define them in the negative. She, now it's not always the best way because as we see, it can lead to some problems when you don't get a little more into investigating what happened in the past could help us understand some things better here. But I I really appreciate her. You know, I just, Feel bad for his parents. Like so heartbreaking that even in this moment, even in her own loss, she feels for someone else's loss. Right.
1: After wandering around Gangaga for a minute, you can go check out the burned out reactor. I'm gonna return real quick. So you, you fight the Turks, right? Uh, It's pointed out that the Turks were here waiting for us. So somebody... They they knew we were coming. So somebody must be informing them, right? And Cloud has a line. I trust everyone here. And I have to wonder, like, really? You trust everyone? I get trusting Aerith and Tifa and Barry. You had this big adventure with them in Midgar. But Yuffie, you've kind of just met recently. And she joined you because she thinks she's awesome.
0: And she stole your shit.
1: And she stole your stuff. And Cayet and Sith is uh, possibly an anthropomorphic cat or possibly the, uh, a machine in the shape of an anthropomorphic cat who joined you just just because he said he was going to? Yeah. Like, we, we trust both of these. Like, I, I get wanting to trust the people you're
0: fighting with and, and traveling with, but... I don't know, that feels a little... Yeah, I think this is a no zealot like a convert situation for Cloud and the idea of trusting or having faith in him. It's like he's gone from not trusting or having faith in anybody to they went through this whole experience in Midgar and now he's left and now he's got these close friends and all of a sudden he's feeling safe in a way he's never felt before with these people who he feels like he can trust and now all of a sudden he's way overly trusting because he's never had people to rely on before. And yeah, not a, (laughs) as we'll find out, not a a, a great mindset to have. Uh, There's a bit of foreboding foreshadowing there in that statement.
1: We're checking out the reactor uh, and a Shinra helicopter shows up. So our characters hide. Scarlet, uh, the woman who is the head of weapons development and Seng, the man who's the head of the Turks, get out of the helicopter. Scarlet's looking for some materia. Aren't we all? Uh, And she searches around, and she says, Ah, this is junky materia from a junky reactor. I'm looking for huge materia.
0: Whatever that means. Uh, (laughs) You know know, know how everyone's got a big sword or a big cannon on (laughs) their... I'm looking for big... Come on. Big big materia. Big materia.
1: (laughs) And she makes the comment, We can make the ultimate weapon if we had some. With Hojo gone, weapons development has a bigger budget. Uh, Even if we make it, though I wonder if that stupid Heidegger could even use it. And I kind of love that Scarlet and Heidegger
0: hate each other. I do, too. Uh, <laughs> Again, because like, then whose side are you going to pick? Because there's nobody in that who's a good person. So then you just no. get to kind of <laughs> decide which one of them you hate more, which can also right. be fun.
1: <laughs> they're, they're both just really, they're really good bad guys to hate. So that's what happens at Gangaga and the Burned Out Reactor. We get the, the background with Zack. Uh, we get uh, some foreshadowing of, of what's coming from Shinra and, and trying to find a huge material.
0: Also, um, double meanings of words. We've talked about we trip up sometimes on soldier because soldier oftentimes mean small grunt and that they've taken that to mean the most elite class of combatant that they have. Um, weapon. Talking about yeah. creating weapons and great weapons. Uh, there's, there's another meaning for that. There's a, there's a foreboding there as well about big weapons. <laughs> So uh, our heroes clamber
1: back into their buggy and and make their way further into the world and we shift to a sort of a reddish desert area with these, uh, these rocky formations and canyons and whatnot.
0: This is the only time I could recall, or I, su- I suppose I should say, the first time I could recall in an RPG uh, having the world map change like that in terms of its coloration and then the music even kick in before you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lighting shifts, right? Yeah, yeah, just a really cool effect that hammered home that. you're you're going to a place that's different than anywhere you've visited so far in this world.
1: So the buggy conveniently breaks down right in front of this community and we we find ourselves in Cosmo Canyon. It's got that cool music that you were just describing, there's lots of ladders, it's built into like the side of a cliff, kind of like the Pueblos out here in in western Colorado in the southern area of the state and all that. It's really neat looking. And Red 13 leaps from the party and he says, I am home, it is I, Nanaki. And people are thrilled to see Red or Nanaki as he names himself. And they're like, hey, Red's back. Or they don't call him Red. They say, hey, Nanaki's back. Make sure you say hello to Bugenhagen, which is cool. Yeah. Because we're about to meet a really cool, goofy character. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Red runs off into town and he leaves the party. And he did initially say, hey, look, I'll go with you as far as home. So this is probably where Red's going to leave the party, right? This is it it is explained depending on who you talk to uh you get some explanation that this is where people come to study planet life and and they they say you know the the area the the town is full right now so i can't let you in but red comes back and he says hey they helped me when i was out on the road please let them in so oh the guys like oh sure. i mean if nanaki says so cloud's like who's nanaki the Guy says nanaki is nanaki which parallels what red said earlier you know i uh, you know, who are you? I am that which, you know, stands before you, which I thought was really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and it's, you know, there's this sort of visual disconnect right away with, and again, remember, Red Thirteen, Nanaki is the last of his kind. He's the only one who looks like he does. So all of these, these are all human beings, you know, who look like Cloud Teeth and Aerith, and they human beings, and he's running around, and these are his... You know, kind of his family. It's it's his hometown, but nobody here looks like him, and so that's just kind of this interesting representation of a, well, a lot really. There's a lot going on there, but I, I think it was it was very unexpected the first time uh, that this was you know the just just coming upon this place, and it's so different than anything we've seen in Final Fantasy before.
1: Right. So Red explains. My tribe were the protectors of those who appreciate this beautiful canyon and the planet. My brave mother fought and died here, but my cowardly father left her. I am the last of my race, so the mission I inherited from my ancestors is to protect this place. My journey ends here. So this is probably a good time to jump into our character study of Red Thirteen. We put it off. Usually we do it when we initially meet the character. We put it off because it's perhaps more interesting to do it once we get some of his background. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as we, as we have described, Red 13 is sort of this wolf-cat creature, quadruped, red-furred. Uh, it's kind of a spiky mane. He's got the uh, Red 13 tattoo on his, I would say his bicep, but it's like a four-leg, I guess. Yeah. And there's some interesting, potentially problematic, ethnic coding with this character. He wears a feathered headdress. He. It, now that we're in Cosmo Canyon... Uh, He's got that sort of drumming music in the background. There is one of the things that actually... There's a lot about this that doesn't bother me, but I think is is worth examining. But one of the things that does bother me is that the weapon shop here is named the Tiger Lily Arms Shop.
0: Yeah, that's a little... Yeah. Presumably Um. in
1: reference to the Peter Pan character of Tiger Lily. But... You know, British dudes writing about Native Americans, even, you know, fictional Native Americans on a fictional make-believe island. That can be kind of problematic because it's... it's the a person of the empire making up stories about people conquered by members of that empire.
0: Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, you know, I've been watching a lot of something that I highly recommend to anybody who loves history and doesn't have a a bunch of free time on their hands. There's YouTube videos called Crash Course History and there's Crash Course World History and Crash Course U.S. History. And one of the things that the guy John Green does an exceptional job of is pointing out that far too often we read history through the words and experiences of the imperialists, the people who had the most power, and we get our ideas of other cultures not through their own writings, but through the writings of Europeans. And so he tries to, I think he does a great job of correcting that a lot of times and, and looking at history through the lens of the people who lived that history, not through the lens of somebody else who discovered it and is now commenting on a culture that they're looking at from the outside. And we've discussed this before about how Final Fantasy walks a difficult line here between trying to be multicultural and literally blending world religions and cultures and ideas and theoretically races together. We've talked before about how a lot of the main characters are sort of this combination between Asian and European. It's, you know, it's difficult to say exactly what race they would be if they existed in our world. And then we add the conversation, of course, around Barrett Wallace, because then it's clear that, well, that's the first guy who's just clearly a black guy. And it's difficult when nobody on your writing staff or on your production team is a black guy to write a black character. It just is. You, you run into that problem that John Green talks about you are to some degree attempting to tell someone else's story that would arguably be better told by them and bringing with it inherent biases in your own limited prism and on the other side of that not having any characters of any other race but your own or any other background but your own, is problematic as well, right? Having no representation of any other cultures is is also an issue, especially in a fictional fantasy world where you have unlimited freedom to be as representational as you want. So with... You know, Red Thirteen or or the Nanaki character here, I think there are a lot of things like the Tiger Lily thing that's just super unfortunately what's the word? Stereotypical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's too it's, tropey. It, tropy and stereotypical and uh and even harmful in terms of its sort of two dimensional concept of of what a Native American is or should be, right? But at the same right. time, Having the character and the music, like we talked about with Barrett, I think allows some people to connect with it in a way that maybe they otherwise would not have, right? right. And I think it helps
1: that both Red and Barrett are not flat characters they're not just stereotypes they're interesting complicated characters with backgrounds and motivations and a wide range of emotions
0: i think that's why final fantasy never gets into super trouble with this issue because they don't write two-dimensional characters so even those like occasional clumsy representations can be more overlooked because of the three-dimensional nature of it right i do also want to point out
1: though that if your only representation of a native american is literally not human then that's a bit of a problem so again not really native american right because there's no america in this right right. in this world And and we've talked about that but at the same time uh clearly coded as a character representing a lot of what we might think of as the stereotypical tropes of a native american so feathered headdress the drumming music a planet loving people who who study you know nature uh, right. almost all of whom have been killed off like right. i think there are some clear indications that it's meant to represent an ethnic group that is made up of a lot of different ethnic groups so we yeah. should be careful about act, acting as though all native americans were the right. same
0: that's a problem with quote-unquote African culture as well. Right. Africa's a gigantic continent with it's thousands th- and thousands of cultures.
1: Right. It's the biggest continent on the planet, and there are all these different kinds of people. Right. So, So that he is literally not human kind of bothers me, because that gets into the noble savage, looks scary, but is actually a nice person trope that can be really negative. I don't... Like, I think you can have characters like that and have them be interesting, but... And, and I like that there are non-human characters. Like one of the fun things about speculative fiction is you can have characters who are not human and have them be interesting. And I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had about the difference between non-human and inhumane, right? Like you can have right. characters who are people, who are sentient, who are sapient, who are people uh, but aren't human. And that, that can be a fun dichotomy to play with because then, you know, our Who are the real monsters? We get into The Walking Dead. Well, the real monsters aren't the zombies. Those people are victims. The the real monsters are the humans who take advantage of, right? They're the ones who behave inhumanely. And I love that. But again, being the only representative and having him literally not be human is... Again, it helps that he's a a fully fleshed out character.
0: Right. But uh, the answer to this problem, I think, is already seen in another... Culture that that struggles with the exact issue that you're getting at here, and Final Fantasy did it in the remake of of Seven, and that's with the the trans community or the LGBTQ community, whichever. But particularly, even with I think the trans community, because I was watching a, a documentary recently. Again, another thing I highly recommend. It's on Netflix called Disclosure, and uh, this one woman, trans woman, was speaking about how these clumsy representations are worse when it's the only one right it's it's that red thirteen is the only main character in the history of final fantasy at least up to this point uh, i'd have to you know but who who is supposed to be sort of representative of this culture right and for it to then also be not human to be so over the top about all of the nature stuff is more problematic because there are no other people in the story who are also representing that culture. It was the same problem with Barrett being literally the only black guy in Gaia in the first game. Well, now in the remake, there's people of color all over Midgar, as well there should be. And hopefully, when we get to Cosmo Canyon, there will be plenty of human being characters who are also representing the culture and doing so in a three-dimensional way and and in doing so well. Uh, The same way Andrea Rodea, you know, was put into the remake. We see all the time. It's not that trans people, in fact, trans people are disproportionately victims of violence. But that doesn't mean that the only time you have a trans person in your movie or your game, you have to kill them. Right. Or make them a victim or make people hate them. Any of that. Andrea Rodea right. is just awesome. And he's just there and he's just dope. Right. <laughs> and, that's and nobody it. hates him. And like everybody seems to love this
1: dude, right? right? Like everybody's on board. Even the guy who might have been sort of the rednecky, uh, afraid of gay people character uh, in Chocobo Sam just is clearly uh, appreciative of Andrea Rodea. And... Yeah, just a a wonderful character. I think that I think that is probably the first time that Final Fantasy has hit it out of the park in in that regard. Yeah. Because like you said, not the victim of violence. Everybody loves him. Just just a really cool character.
0: So yeah, I I think to, you know, the that woman's point from before, if you have more representations like that, then those occasional ones where it's not quite on the money or the the native character is not human or the trans character does get killed because we do need to learn some of those lessons too it's not so bad there just needs to be more of it and so for me that's right. the answer for you know Cosmo Canyon in the remake and, and hopefully throughout the world we just see more people representing that culture
1: absolutely uh, and and so so another way to say that is People who are representative of marginalized communities need to be represented in pop culture in a way that is not so marginalized. Uh, yeah. Just all, so that they can fill a variety of roles instead of just the stereotypical role. Exactly. And I want to get in since you brought up trans characters. I want to talk about Queen of So Queena is from Final Fantasy nine is a non-binary character. Like the whole race, I guess, is th- there's no male and female. And so, again, this is a, a non-human character. So you can have you know, your non-binary representation, but again, it's like one of the few non, actually, that game is filled with non-human characters, and so is the party. so I shouldn't say it quite like that. Yeah. but still, it, I would have almost pref- I, I think I would have preferred it had we had a non-binary character who was human. But like you just said, they, the, the franchise as a whole continues to make that effort which helps. And Queen is just a fun character. So that helps. Right. And I want to get back into it with uh, Barrett a bit. Because like we said, in the original game that we're talking about now, he is the only black character, except maybe also Reno, though that was unclear to me at the time, in the whole world. And I, we, we sort of talked about he's the stereotypical angry black guy in a lot of ways. And that can be kind of problematic. But at the same time, like we drew the parallel with Mr. T. Who in the '80s was like the black character I knew about, but, but also, like that—that's who he was. Like he wasn't a character; he was a person. I don't want to make it. I—I I, I feel like I made it seem at the time like I thought that Mr. T was a negative stereotype, and he wasn't. He was an incredibly thoughtful person. And there's this uh, interview that he did with David Letterman back. Which Rocky movie was he in? No. <laughs> Rocky Two or Rocky Three. I don't know. He was in one of the Rocky movies. And he was doing you know, was doing the promotional tour. And Mr. T's or, or excuse me, David Letterman's singing his praises, saying, Man, you were a really scary dude in that movie And I kind of David Letterman makes me really uncomfortable in that interview because he's trying to crack jokes and, and make this kind of fun and Mr. T is being very sober about the whole thing. Yeah. So Letterman asks, you know, Mr. T, is that your real name? And he says, if Pope John Paul II came on your show, would you ask him if that's his real name? Hmm. Which is fantastic. And he explains, I changed my name because I wasn't given respect before. People have a tendency to call a man boy. So I changed my name so the first word out of people's mouths was Mr. Because it's a sign of respect. Which... uh, I mean, he, this is, he, he made the, that decision on purpose. He made a very purposeful, conscious choice to insist on being respected because black men were often not respected. He also described the, the stuff he wears, right? He, Mr. T was big into the gold chains and the feathered earrings and the mohawk. And he explained that he is a descendant of the Mandiga warriors, which was a tribe in Africa, and they wore feathered earrings, diamonds, gold, and and the chains are gold because they are symbolic. He says, of his struggle, his ancestors, brought to the United States of America, were shackled by their wrists, their necks, their ankles, and he turned those shackles into gold. And it makes some people uncomfortable, but that's the point. So, Damn. so Mr. T is, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about him as though he is a negative stereotype he is also a complicated fully realized human being with a with a backstory and with motivations and and so on the one hand if the only black person you know of is mr t and you therefore model your only black character after him that's potentially problematic at the same time mr t himself is not problematic and Barrett being a, a, a fully realized character with an awesome voice actor who you actually got to uh, help interview on a whole different podcast than our own. That I think helps, but like you said, they keep making the effort to have better, more interesting uh, representation and the more different characters who are of these marginalized groups, the more different roles these characters get to play and that, that helps.
0: Yeah, you know we've talked a lot on when we get up to these issues about how two cis white guys, (laughs) you know, can have a difficult time having these conversations in full. In fact, it's impossible for us to have these conversations in full. Um, Right, we can't tell somebody else's story. Exactly, Uh, which is which is exactly the problem we're talking about here, right? Trying to tell somebody else's story. But I, I think I'd like to finish out this part of the conversation, therefore, uh, with not our words. By playing a little bit of that conversation, uh, my friend Matt DiOrio uh, had me on his podcast, Crash and Game Night. We got to interview John Eric Bentley, the voice of Barrett Wallace, in the remake. And I asked him about this very specific problem. And I think in his answer, well, I think his answer is the answer for Square, for Final Fantasy, and, and, and really for... Artistic representation. So let's let John finish out. Let's let him have the last word on this. Did, did you think of, at all about the history of the... I mean, this was an important character culturally, but there were also some things about the way he was written originally that maybe weren't...
2: You can, you can say it. Feel free to say it. No, me, so this is a conversation I've been quite a bit. Number one, I was a fan of Final Fantasy when it came out. Uh, I had just gotten married, and I didn't know what RPGs were. I mean, I knew from Wild Arms and different things like that. But when I played Final Fantasy, I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's a black dude in this. And he doesn't. Uh, let's let's be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I freaked out when I watched Friday the, Friday the 13th when the brother was in it, and he was like, let's kick the, the MF his butt all over of man. And he didn't die. I don't get me. When it came back, the next one, he died. Yeah, he didn't But laugh. at least he made movies. Yeah. You got to that's a big deal in the in our culture. So you got an RPG where the dude is not only just in it throughout, he's the leader. He's gruff. He's got all these different uh, dimensions to him. He adopted a little baby girl who is not of his culture from a friend who was killed right in front of him as he was trying to save him. Um, he's trying to save the place, planet conscious. Look at where we are right now mm-hmm. with being conscious, green. Um, there's so many different dimensions. So for me, I'm going to be honest with you, Drew. The biggest thing is that I wanted to not have him be this big black brute that I knew everyone to perceive him as like a um, like Mr. T was the voice that people got mm-hmm. from right looking at him from what I from a consensus and I'm like well okay I get that and I think that is a valid voice for him but let's let's give him dimensions in his voice let's give him tones let's give him uh, a, the, the story that is actually written you don't have to come up with a backstory it's right there it's written they wrote the hell out of these characters. So for me, I was very conscious, conscious about conscious about not making him this big black brute that so many cause you gotta remember this is a universal thing. And I didn't want people in other countries to um to look at him as this caricature of what they think black people are like in the United States. And that that was something that I was very conscious of. So I wanted I wanted to this man who is a man who has thoughts, has a thought process, has a child, cares about his people, cares about his cause. I wanted to bring all that all that together because it just didn't make sense to play him as this big black group, which is how a lot of people just visually see him and so many folks in the United States of America. So I was very conscious of it. And I I was worried that now you got to understand there's there's a duality in it. You have to be careful not to be so over the top that your own culture goes, come on, man. And you have to also be careful that any other culture goes, yeah, that's how they are. And so that was in the back of my mind the whole time I was doing every session I had. I wanted to make sure that he was articulate, but still gruff, a leader. um, There's a lot of comedy. Uh, with, with Barrett and I didn't want it to be some Amos and Andy show so yeah there's a lot a lot of, lot of stuff went into doing Barrett man
1: So Red lets you into town, and he wants to introduce you to his grandfather. Now, As we said, Red is the last of his kind, so his grandfather is a human being, the man he refers to as grandfather. Uh, this is Bugenhagen. Let's do a, a quick character study on Bugenhagen. He's an old dude. He knows a lot of things. He's, he's the sage of this world, right? He's the sage of this story who's going to impart upon us uh, some wisdom, uh, he's going to do it in a really cool way. He also doesn't seem to have legs, and he can float.
0: Or maybe yeah. he, he's yeah, sitting... You, there's a limited number of questions you can ask of a guy named Boogan <laughs> Buchen... <laughs> Yeah,
1: I think he's meant to be sitting on a ball and the ball floats. But my yeah, other question some is... some kind of like
0: wheelchair of magic.
1: Right, right. Maybe it's a Charles Xavier chair like from the 80s cartoons. Yeah. So he lives He lives <laughs> in this observatory which is this tower on the top of one of the, the rocky protrusions here in Cosmo Canyon uh, and there's a, a telescope on top and it's a very vertical living space, and there are ladders all over the place. What I want to know is, why are there ladders in your house if you can float?
0: Whoa.
1: (laughs) Probably for the visitors, right? Other people want to use (laughs) the telescope. Presumably. He doesn't expect everyone to float. (laughs) Right. He's being aware of other people. So Red explains that this is his grandfather, Bugin, and uh, he's incredible, and he knows everything. And and Bugan thanks you for looking after Nanaki, uh, explains that Nanaki is still a child. Red says, Grandfather, please stop. I am forty eight. And Bugan hangs and says, No, no. His people are incredibly long lived. Forty eight's like fifteen, maybe
0: sixteen years old in human reckoning. I loved that reveal. I don't know if that's a thing like I don't, I don't know if people cared about that, but for me, because c- he speaks in this elevated language and he almost talks mm-hmm. down to the party the whole mm-hmm. time. And I feel again in the remake, like when he's immediately talking trash to Barrett, like, yeah, he's, <laughs> like, yeah, he, he almost talks down to I'm the more spiritual being and you people don't understand what I understand. And then you figure out he's a teenager. He's just right. a kid like the rest of you. I loved that.
1: So now we start getting into some of the deepness here of the philosophy of Final Fantasy VII as explained through our sage, Bugenhagen. He says, Reaching into the heavens, threatening to snatch the very stars from the great city of Midgar. You've seen it, haven't you? Well, that's a bad example. Looking up too much makes you lose perspective. Which, you know, says the guy living in an an observatory, but When it's time for the planet to die, you'll understand that you know absolutely nothing. It may be tomorrow or a hundred years from now, but it's not long off.
0: Okay, thanks. So, so we're doing this, huh? Okay. Uh-huh.
1: He explains, I hear the cries of the planet. And you get that sound effect that they play when you can hear the cries of the planet. He says, it's the sound of the stars in the heavens. When this goes on, planets are born and die. That was a scream from the planet, as if to say, I hurt. I suffer. And Rez says, hey, they've come here on a long journey to save the planet. Why don't you show them your apparatus? Which I assume is the... That's just, I feel like that's an odd word choice. Like, Let's take him to the holodeck, is basically what he's saying. Which we get to see sort of in Final
0: Fantasy VII Remake. Which is super cool. Just—I Man, <laughs> uh, just, I keep just imagining this is... It's going to blow us all away, but yeah. Take them to the apparatus, the device. They don't have, there's not a word for it yet. The machine. Ages of invention, you would often find that, right? The the contraption. Right. And and people are just inventing brand new things.
1: So it is, it's basically a holodeck. You go into this room, and uh, it's this light show, and it's a a bunch of holograms. And you, uh, they turn it on, and it comes on in the background. we see the solar system. We're standing amongst the solar system. It looks very much like our real-world solar system, the, you know, the sun in the center and then our planet is the third planet from the sun and there certainly appears to be a very Jupiter-looking planet.
0: Yeah, that, there's a whole weird... We could dive deeper into and I just don't feel like I'm prepared right now the <laughs> the, the cosmos of this fictionalized, I guess you would now have to call it a universe because we're we're not really just talking about one planet anymore, the the conversation has just become about the tiny blue dot and its role in a wider cosmos, right, we've just blown the entire conversation out, literally to the cosmic level, and it it hits you that way in the original, I remember it hitting me that way, this moment of like, yeah we'd been to the moon in Final Fantasy 4, but this felt I don't know, just so much bigger
1: than that. Bugunhagen says, Eventually, all humans die. What happens to them after they die? Which feels very Socratic method to me. Yeah. The gentle kind, not like the badgering kind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The body decomposes and returns to the planet. That much, everyone knows. But what about their consciousness, their souls? The soul, too, returns to the planet. And not only those of humans, but everything on this planet. In fact, all living things in the universe are the same. The spirits that return to the planet merge with one another and roam the planet. They roam, converge, divide, become a swell we call the life stream. In other words, a path of energy, the souls roaming the planet. We we focus in on their Earth-like planet. And there, there are all these sparkles all over the uh, the globe, uh, presumably to, to represent souls and, and life stream energy. Spirit energy, he says, is the source of life for trees, birds, humans, and not only living things. It uh, makes it possible to form planets. And if that energy were to disappear, and then the, the uh, holographic version of the planet crumbles apart and drifts into space. And I think... I, I like this because it, uh, it parallels some real-world religions uh, when we start talking about you know, Hinduism uh, and, and the soul yeah. sort of returning to the, uh, the, the larger energy of, of the world. Uh, it's also interesting to me that it, this is, it strongly parallels the, the film Spirits Within, right? Like a lot of Spirits Within is this philosophy of Final Fantasy VII and when the general uh, says, so if I fire a gun into the ground, am I harming the planet? It's
0: like, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Way to deliberately miss the point, I guess.
0: Right, um, like imagine making that comment uh, about Buddhism and uh, a belief of all things belonging to the same, all living things belonging to the same energy force—that there's really no separation between those things—and it's an, it's an interesting and, and non-exclusionary. I would. Add a view of the world. There's nothing about that concept that has to get in the way of several other belief systems that you could put on top of it. So I've always found that kind of spirituality to be very intriguing, very interesting. The notion that there is some sort of energy force, if you want to call it a soul or or you know, but but that the souls. Of all of the living things aren't individual things that they're basically the I think the best analogy I've heard from it is like droplets of water in the ocean sure you could separate out and and technically the ocean is made up of a bunch of different droplets of water but like so our, our souls would all be technically different things but they exist in what is basically an ocean of cosmic life energy and i find that to be remarkably compelling to think about so he finishes his explanation by saying spirit energy
1: can be compressed in reactors and processed into mako energy all living things are being used up and thrown away mako energy will destroy the planet. So so the idea yeah. of this world in Final Fantasy VII is that the planet can only exist so long as the energy of living beings exist, right? And so if we're pulling that energy, that literal energy from the planet and using it to power our air conditioners and condensing it into materia so we get the superpowers of the planet, well, we are we're using it up. Instead of letting it serve its purpose to to become living things uh, and then die and return and then become living things again, and that is the big problem with with what the Shinra Corporation is doing and so like th- those are the stakes right like we we've got the, we're fighting Shinra because they're fascists and they're killing people and they're imprisoning people and they're torturing people and they're they're doing all the horrible fascist things that fascist capitalists imperialists do but also we're fighting sephiroth because he's trying to take over the planet because he believes that he alone can fix everything and and he alone deserves uh, to be the king of the world but those two things aside like the very existential crisis of final fantasy 7 is that if we continue the way we are nobody's goals not shinra's not seferos that not anybody who lives on this planet will matter because all life will be extinguished we right. have to fix this first we have to deal with the white walkers first we have to deal with climate change first we have to we have to deal with the virus covid-19 first because if we don't it doesn't matter what any of our other goals are we will all be dead
0: right And it is our own hyper-consumption that is killing us. I mean, we literally pull the long-dead bodies of long-dead living creatures out of the ground in the form of oil and use it to power our modern conveniences and pollute the only planet we know for sure we can live on. This isn't hypothetical, the, the the writers of Final Fantasy VII aren't suggesting, man, wouldn't it be horrible if this was the case? They're telling you straight up, like, yeah, we got a lot of problems and there's a lot of stuff you still got to go out there and do and, and this game is about life and love and loss and friendship and all those other things. But if you destroy through your need to consume the only environment we have then none of those things matter right
1: and i feel like in our real world predicament with all this there are solutions that have been posed and and some of us uh are are trying to move down some of those paths right i wonder though if there's a parallel solution to final fantasy 7 like have you seen anywhere in in the story or the game where um like you know, f- taking care of Sephiroth is is one thing, but that doesn't solve the uh, the economic uh, or energy crisis of this planet. Is there a you know a Paris Climate Accord? <laughs> right. I Final mean, other Fantasy than VII?
0: overthrowing Shinra, I I don't know. We'll have to keep our eyes out if there's if someone prescribes uh, an ideology, uh, perhaps in Wutai, maybe, but. Um, or, or, or even, you know, here in Cosmo Canyon, the idea, and, and it can be overly simplified, and like you said, there's a, a real world, capital P, problematic tendency to romanticize, like, oh, Native Americans were so much more in touch with nature and, and lived sort of this more fulfilled life, and they didn't have any of the technologies. Like, you know what, the Amish still exists, the Native American people still exist, if we wanted to live that way, we'd live that way. Stop romanticizing it and saying, oh, we've, we've become, we've done this on purpose. We, you know, right? Like, right. And, and if we wanted to be less consumer and, and more in touch with nature, we'd make a conscious effort to go out and do it. There's, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. (laughs) Right. Um, you know, other than societal pressures to live, I, I suppose what people would see as a quote unquote normal existence, but
1: Right. And, you know, I, I love my house. I don't want to give up my house. I like yeah. I like playing video games, right? We're here talking about a video game. Right. <laughs> a, a product of modern, modern convenience. Right. It seems like there's a way to do all of that, but also
0: not to the excess that we have gone to. Right. And and I, I think really that, you know, these games, it's oftentimes about balance and... You know that's what Star Wars is about, and they draw on that same ethos too, right? Of uh, of the balance, like Sid Highwind, who will eventually meet. Like his, we're supposed to root for his goals of technological advancement, and right. and so it's not just uh, we should halt all progress and be like the people in Cosmo Canyon or be like the Native Americans. That's not. That's very clearly not the message of Final Fantasy VII. It's more complicated than that. So, yeah, and and maybe that therein lies the answer is to let life's, you know, complications play out and just try to earnestly approach them.
1: So our heroes, uh, after getting this explanation, are sitting around a campfire. You can talk to everybody. Barrett will explain that Cosmo Canyon is where Avalanche was born, the the movement to fight Shinra. He promised his guys that someday uh, when we save the planet from Shinra, we'd all go to Cosmo Canyon and celebrate. It's uh, nice that there's a a Cosmo Canyon drink at the seventh heaven in the remake.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, He does wonder, is it right to go on without them? Will they ever forgive me? Whatever it takes to save the planet, I'm going to do it. Avalanche is born again. Yeah. Tifa says, uh, bonfires are funny, aren't they? They make you remember all sorts of things. Remember. Hmm. Memories. Yeah. She says, you know, Cloud, five years ago? No, forget it. I'm afraid to ask. and and cloud will press her on it and she says it feels like you're going far away you really are you right what kind of question is that (laughs) um what erith says "Uh, i learned a lot she says the elders taught me many things who is she talking about when she says says the elders I don't know um, uh, uh, I, yeah i I've, I've never quite understood this because she's mostly lived either in Shinra Tower or with Elmira, so I, I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if that's just a mistake in the translation or or a, yeah. just a, a goof in the script. I
0: don't know,
1: but she she does ruminate about the Ketra uh, and the promised land, and she says, you know I'm I'm all alone, I'm the only one of my kind now, which sort of parallels red. And, and she's sort of being kind of broody here but it's, you know, it's worth remembering that we're here as a party and we are going to help each other out and finally Red uh, says long ago when I was very small we were all around this flame when I talk about my f- mother I'm full of pride and joy when I think of my father my heart is full of anger and Bugenhagen shows up and he says you really can't forgive your father but it says of course not he left my mother for dead. When the Gee tribe attacked, he ran off by himself, leaving mother and the people of Cosmo Canyon. And Hagen says, all right, come on, Nanaki, there's something you should see. So uh, we put together a, a party, uh, and we go through the sealed door. There was this door that uh, Hagen sealed off, and only he can open it. And he takes you down into this cave. And he says, everyone here in this cave is a ghost of the Gee tribe that they weren't able to return to the life stream because they're vengeful spirits. And so you go you go back through this cave and you fight through all these monsters, uh, and he, and eventually you get all the way to the back, and he says, as you can see, it's very narrow here. A warrior went through this cave all alone, fighting the warriors of the Gii tribe one after another. And we and get this really cool remix of the, uh, the Cosmo, it's the great warrior remix of the Cosmo Canyon theme. And Bugenhagen points to the top of this uh this sort of rocky protrusion in the cliff face and there's a a stone statue here of a person who looks very much like red 13 uh, with a bunch of arrows sticking out of him and he says he continues to protect us even now you thought your father was a coward but he alone risked his life to protect cosmo canyon i want you to continue on your journey with cloud and the others they say they're trying to save the planet honestly i don't think it can be done even if they stop every reactor, even if they stop Sephiroth, everything will perish. But, Nan- uh, but Nanaki, I've been thinking lately. If there's anything we could do, no matter what happens, it's important to try, isn't it? Am I just wishing against fate? And I, I like this for many, many reasons. Because oftentimes our sage-like characters can be sort of above it all. Yeah, and and forget that they're living in the world, and he's he's acknowledging that here. That even with his, he explains that he's about to be 130 years old, so he can't go on the journey. So Nanaki has to, and so so even at this age, he's got he, you know he can still change. He can still learn. We've talked about characters, the the old mentor characters who their their real function in the story is to is to teach the hero and then to die so that the hero can go on and have their adventure here we're sort of uh, fighting against that trope as Final Fantasy so often does and, and saying that even, even after 130 years Bugenhagen can change his mind can learn something yeah. so I really enjoy that but I also really enjoy because again Final Fantasy 7 Remake am I just wishing against
0: fate mm.
1: Heck and yeah man
0: yeah yeah, th- I mean, this is, this is this is a great sequence for a number of reasons. All that, even the fact that he shows so much doubt, you know, oftentimes these sage characters, even if they have some doubt, they're trying to instill hope in the young hero to go off and save the world. And here Buggenhagen states plainly, like, I don't think they're gonna do it, man. Like, which just drives home even further, you know, the, the task we have ahead of us, but... Yeah, I I love it for the first reason you pointed out, that he's not above it all. He's a person in this world, and he cares about it. And we have to try. That that we have to try, even if you don't believe, even if you're more aware of the unlikeliness of your success... (laughs) He still wants to, to give it a go. That is, that is the ethos, I think, of Final Fantasy. So
1: the camera pans up and we get this really cool shot of the stone statue of Seto, the father of Nanaki, um, you know, still standing guard over this back way into Cosmo Canyon. And it's, uh, he's sort of uh, backlit by the moon and it's a really cool shot. And Nanaki hops up the, the cliff a little ways to be nearer to the statue of his father and, and he howls at the moon. And the statue of Seto. Begins to cry. It like cries. I guess rocks. It's it's unclear to him what. But whatever magic petrified Seto still allows him to be aware, which has got to be an agonizing sort of existence.
0: And with that, Red Thirteen gets a little bit of closure, a little bit of a deeper understanding of his own lineage and past, and the party gets a much deeper understanding of one of their new friends and now a completely indelible member of the party and we are ready to move on toward the bigger rest of the adventure that's it for this episode thanks for listening and thanks to everyone who reached out to us feel free to let us know what we missed should have mentioned or got wrong You can find us on social media at FFWeeklyPod or email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. You know the podcast is totally free to listen to, but if you want to be able to download it to your normal podcast app, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we return to the place where this all began.